Good morning again. Not loud to you, I feel loud to me. Good. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at another large section of Scripture as we continue our doctrinal study on the, the doctrine of God's providence. We're about seven weeks in. We're almost halfway done. We'll finish up, Lord willing, the end of the year. And uh, after the first of the year, begin uh, our more regular diet of verse-by-verse exposition of the gospel of John. But I hope this has been as satisfying to you as it has been to me. So Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 8 of of chapter 1 into chapter 2 through chapter 2, verse 10. I know it's a longer reading, but let's stand in honor of reading of God's, the honor reading of God's word. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We just finished the story of Joseph, right, four weeks. So arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that the child was a fine child, he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And when the sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. It is what we need. We need to hear from heaven this morning. We need to see Jesus. And so this morning, even as we look at Moses, I pray that we would see Christ. He'd open our eyes to see great things from your word. 
God, we would not go from here saying, we've learned some good things. We would go from here transformed and resolved in our hearts and minds to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and changing our hearts more and more into the image of Jesus. God, you give us this holy hatred of sin and love for righteousness through your word and by your spirit. God, I pray you build your church in us and through us the gates of hell might not overcome it. Pray this all in the strong and the mighty and the great name of Jesus Christ, Lord. Amen. Well, we've been sending out these preview videos, and I asked this question in the preview video. They're just two minutes, so watch them. But if you didn't, you're going you're gonna to hear it again, which is good, this week, maybe not in future weeks. But here's the question I put in that video. If you had to name five, the five most important people in the history of the world, who would make your list? I mean, the number one slot for all of us, probably worldwide, would be Jesus Christ. I suspect a lot of unbelievers would agree with that. They'd say, well, Jesus Christ, he founded religion, he's a prophet and a, and a good man and a moral man and all these things. And so he would at least make the list. He'd probably be one, number one. Some would put Gandhi and other, other important sort of sociopolitical leaders in world history. I mean, maybe you'd include Louis Pasteur, who, the father of modern germ theory, who basically helped invent modern medicine. That was vital, right? That was important. Maybe you'd say Benjamin Franklin. We have lights because of Benjamin Franklin. We have electricity because of Benjamin Franklin. I like my electricity. Don't want to give that up. That was really, really important. Or maybe Johannes Gutenberg, who invented the printing press. I love books. I've got like a million of them, and so I'm recommending them to you two at a time out here as our elders are, but maybe it was Johannes Gutenberg. That was a, an amazing invention God used him to the movable printing press. Give us books, and spread the gospel, and spread knowledge. And surely you'd say Adam, right? You'd say Adam because he was the first man. He the, stands at the headwaters of all of humanity. At least we Christians believe so. At least if we're orthodox, right? We, are, we affirm the historical Adam and think that's very, very important as a side note. Maybe you'd say George Washington. I'm an American, and George Washington, he was the founding president of this country, and what a great man he was. Maybe you'd say, well, it was Al Gore who invented the Internet, because we have the Internet. And I can ignore you and look at the Internet right now, thanks to Al Gore. At least that's what Al Gore tells us. We don't know about that, but we'll, that's another, that's another uh, debate for another time. But what about Moses? How many of you would name Moses as one of the five most important people in human history. I don't know if he'd make our list. I don't know if he'd make your list, but he should. And of course, I'm not here to debate. That's not here. That's not the whole point, right? Well, why are you saying this? Well, it doesn't matter ultimately if he makes your list or not. But I believe, and I think we're going to look this morning as we consider the, the, uh, the, the, the doctrine of providence, the subject, the topic of providence in light of Moses and the story of Moses' birth and what happened after that and what continues to happen today I think you're going to see that he is one of the most important people in world history. I would probably put him at number two. I might put him ahead of the Apostle Paul. And I love Paul's theology, right? And you do too. Without Moses, there really is no Paul. And we're going to see that, Lord willing, as we walk through this. Now, of course, the context, the book of Exodus immediately follows the story of Joseph. We've been four weeks in the story of Joseph examining God's providence, not doing a verse-by-verse -verse study as is our, our usual pattern, but looking at the story of Joseph and God's providence and how God used Joseph in a mighty way to rescue his people there in Egypt and to, to save really the ancient Near Eastern world and certainly save the line of the Messiah. And so now we come to Exodus and we come to a very ominous statement here in chapter 1 verse 8. You have Israel increasing in growth in the first seven verses. They, they, they grow, they multiply and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. There's all these Hebrew people. They've grown and that's not going to set well with the leadership because of what happens next. What Moses, who wrote this book, says next. He says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And if that feels ominous to you, indeed it should. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he wrote this book, right? It's very ominous. Joseph is a hero. Joseph is a great man. He might make the list of five, you know, we don't know. But Joseph was known, was the prime minister of, and arose to this number two position in, his, in, in Egypt. But there arose a Pharaoh 
who didn't know Joseph. Who was this Pharaoh? Well, we don't know for certain. Scholars are divided, and it really doesn't matter. It could have been Ramses II or Achmos. There are, a lot, there, there are several answers, and it really only relates to the only important thing is uh, the dating of the Exodus, and that's beyond the purview of this sermon. But really and truly, it doesn't matter because, uh, in terms of how we interpret these verses and interpret this passage. This account began Israel's 400 plus year journey among the Egyptians. And Israel will go from prosperity, from great prosperity, to grinding persecution. And it feels like it's almost overnight. From great prosperity we see at the end of Genesis to, to, to grinding persecution here in the early chapters of Exodus. I mean, Egypt, wow, what a great nation. It seemed like a place where Israel could grow and become a great nation. We're going to go there. It's a great nation. They're great people. We're going to fulfill God's promises right here, surely. That's what God's going to do. That's what we would be guessing, right? We'd say, well, go, oh, man, it's natural. He's going to go into this great world power and going to increase his people. But it will become a place of bondage. As long as Joseph had ruled at the right hand of Pharaoh, the Israelites had held this position of privilege, but no longer. This continued even after Joseph died. But this new dynasty rises to power, led by a king who did not know Joseph leader who feared the Israelites due to their growth. And so what does he do? He makes them his slaves. I think this tells us power politics is nothing new, right? And when it comes to power politics, it's all about who you know, right? This Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. And it's always who you know. That's nothing new. That's not a 21st century reality at all or a 20th century reality. He did not know Joseph. And so here we begin, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. We get this note of foreboding that begin, began back there in Genesis 3 in the war, which will go on throughout the Bible, throughout history, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's going to ramp up here. It's going to ramp up. The seed of the, the, seed of the devil, the seed of Satan is going to make war against the seed of the woman and begin here with God's people. Right? We're going to see it. We're going to see it increase greatly here. And you see that all through Scripture and even Revelation as a, as a summary of what we've seen and what we will see throughout history. So we're not surprised that God's people are persecuted. We're not, if we're persecuted today, and I believe we will be at some point in this country, it won't be easy to believe in Christ and follow Christ, and we're not surprised, are we? We're certainly not the first. We won't be the last if Jesus tarries. And will we be faithful? That's the question. Israel wasn't faithful. Right? We don't have time to, we'll see that as we walk through the next eight or nine weeks and as we uh, do the second half, uh, preach and teach through the second half of this, of this series, we'll see there uh, that they were not faithful. So politically here in Egypt, it's savvy move on Pharaoh's part. It solves Egypt's immigration problem. They were not the first to have immigration problems. They have an immigration problem. They have a labor problem. We have a labor problem, right? They have a labor problem. And so it solves those problems. So it's politically pragmatic for Pharaoh to do this. It looks good. It'll put him in good stead in the next election, no doubt. In chapter 5, after Moses becomes Israel's leader, Pharaoh rejects the God of Israel and increases the already brutal workload of his slaves, which is, of course, the Israelites. So we see what happens later in chapter 1. He instructs them, Pharaoh instructs the midwives to kill all the male Babies born in Egypt, were born to the Hebrews. But God was with the midwives. They were God-fearers, and they refused to play along. And, of course, we could, we could do a whole series on abortion and, uh, and the, murder, uh, the murderousness of abortion, right? The brutality of abortion in this country. And, of course, that's true. And this is one of those texts that we preach on, on uh, abortion, Life Sunday, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and rightly so. They feared God rather than man. And God blessed them. He gave them families. And they, Moses, we're going to see, was saved because they said, well, the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, women, they're more vigorous than the Egyptian women. They come to the birth stool. They give birth quickly. They're vigorous and strong. So God spared them. God used them to spare his people. They were pro-life. They understood very clearly the issues involved in the sanctity of life. And they do serve as a model for us. But that's not our main point this morning. 
Although it's a good, a vital point to make. And so Israel is enslaved and oppressed. So we set the context into which comes this great figure, this important figure, Israel's Savior, little s. Israel's Savior in chapter 2 is born and providentially already preserved. See this in two, chapter 2, in those first 10 verses. God hears Israel's groaning, a groaning under the lash of slavery of Pharaoh, and in His grace and mercy, He sends them a Savior. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So that king dies, and they're still in slavery. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. So he remembers the covenant he made with the patriarchs back in Genesis. God saw the people of Israel, and I love this, and God knew. God knew, and God didn't learn anything, did he? God already knew. This is ordained already. This is history that God's already ordained coming to pass. So chapter 3, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. How frightening must that have been? The bush is burning, it's on fire, literally, and nothing's happening to the bush. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Not because the ground is special, but because God is there. In the presence of God, the ground is holy. Because God is holy. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God, and rightly so. He was afraid to look at God because God was holy, and he was not. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivazites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And then he says this, come, Moses. Moses is probably really good so far. Man, you're right. This is great. We're under prayer. You've got to deliver us, God. And he's Moses. Verse 10. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is called into the ministry. Clearly. Moses, you're going to do it. I'm raising you up. I can't imagine how Moses must have felt about this. You can't run from this because God has spoken, right? And yet Moses tries. Moses tries. God will use Moses as the redeemer, little r, redeemer of Israel. He's going to redeem them. He's going to bring them out. Rescue his children from slavery. And Moses, who is a deeply humble man, Tells God in chapter 4 that Pharaoh won't listen to an obscure person like him. And then in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4, he tells God he's not an eloquent speaker. That I cannot speak to royalty with this poor, lisping, stammering tongue. I can't do it. They, he won't listen. I can't do it, God. And I love what God says in verse 11. I love this. Who has made God's mouth? God is so logical, isn't he? Like it's the end of Job here. It was the last four chapters of Job. Who made your mouth? And my kids know the Sunday school answer here, Jesus did, what God did. He says, uh, who makes you him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And we know the rest of the story. And we're going to know the rest of the story pretty quickly here. He uses Moses. He enables him to, does Moses speak? Yes, he speaks to God. He speaks to man. He speaks as a great 
prophet is a great intermediator, intermediary, a great mediator. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament is born right here, and he is reluctant, as I think we would be too, a, a very humble man. I made your mouth, I'll make you to speak. I will give you the ability to speak. Go on a ministry, some of you are at seminary, and you think, I can never do this. And you're right, you can't, and I can't either. And I only stand here and speak to you through this poor, lisping, stammering, hillbilly tongue because God enables me. That's it. That's true of every man who's ever stood behind the sacred desk and preached the Word of God throughout history and done it faithfully. God does it right, and He's going to do it through Moses. And so where did this begin? This, this is not a blinding flash of light. Lightning didn't strike, right? This isn't even like Luther's story. It had small beginnings, the story of Moses. What I mainly want us to see is God's providence in the details here. Now, we, we know we say the devil's in the details, but when we see the story of Moses, just as we did in Joseph, God is in the details. First, the story of Moses' birth from 32,000 feet. He was born here in verse 1, chapter 2 of Exodus, the house of a Levite couple. Because of Pharaoh's edict that all male children will be put to death, he's hidden by his mother for three months. His mother placed him in a basket, put him on the Nile River to rescue him. That main, that massive river that runs north and south through, uh, through the African continent, through Egypt. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and adopts him. And ironically hires Pharaoh's mother to be his nursemaid, to be his caretaker. So she's going to raise him. His mother, his, his biological mother is going to get to raise him and take care of him until he's an adult. So Moses grew up and returned to Pharaoh's daughter, becoming her son, and she names him Moses. And we later learn that Moses was educated in the Egyptian court as a, a promising young noble. And as in every story in sacred scripture, Moses is not the hero of this story. Who's the hero of this story? Who? God? Come on, you know the answer. I'm not going to count off. God, God is the hero of this story, just like he is every story, right? This is not a Moses-centric story, this birth and this redemption story. This is a God-centric story, like your story and my story and every story in Scripture. we got to always go back to that, right? We don't want to be man-centered here. This is not about Moses. In the end of the day, he's an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. It's about the Redeemer. It's about God. So what did God accomplish through Moses? Let's look at Moses' biography, and you're going to say, man, we're just in the second chapter of Exodus, and it's like almost 12 o'clock. How are we going to do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I used to be a journalist. I love concise stories. So turn to Acts chapter 7. This is brilliant. You can't do better than Scripture, and Scripture is concise. I tell my students who write for me, the Bible is concise, and you better be concise too. Right? God is a good editor. Acts 7, and we see that Stephen's speech, the first martyr of the church, and he rehearses this entire story in just a few verses. So we're going to do the same, all right? So this will take us a couple of minutes here. So verse 21 of chapter 7 of the book of Acts, written by Dr. Luke, verse 21. It says, Moses was born in 20, and then, and when he was exposed, let me start in chapter 20, or verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in father's, his father's house. And when he was exposed, that is, put on the river, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses becomes a great man. He's extremely, very, very educated. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So he kills an Egyptian. Almost immediately after the birth story, he kills an Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrong. Who, who was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill us as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? In other words, you hypocrite. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. 
Now when the 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, Sinai, a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and so he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard the groaning, their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, as key, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So that's what Moses did. God sent him to be a ruler and a judge, a ruler and redeemer rather, by the hand of the angel. And here's what he did. We'll summarize these in just 10 quick steps. One, God's call, God calls him to be the deliverer of Israel. And then God uses Moses, very famous story, you know the story if you've been in church very long, probably, to deliver Israel from Egypt. Moses boldly confronts Pharaoh ten times and God sends ten plagues. Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We have this interplay between the two and those plagues in, uh, in, in chapter 11, chapters 11 to 15. Moses, uh, Moses is unable to procure they're released until, Pharaoh refuses until the 10th plague, the Passover. The death angel will kill the oldest child in every home that doesn't have the blood of the lamb spread over the door of the home, of the house. Of course, that's, what is that but a picture of Christ? And so, oldest child dies in all these homes, and the cattle, the oldest, oldest offspring of the cattle dies. Pharaoh freaks out. The children of Israel, they're Children are safe because the other blood of the lamb spread over the door. And finally, Pharaoh says, go and worship your God. And Moses leads them out. God parts the Red Sea. They walk out on dry ground. Pharaoh has a change of heart, chases them. His, his, his army is swallowed up by the Red Sea. You know the story. I hope. God redeems his people through Moses, brings them out of Egypt. And then God uses Moses to lead Israel through 40 years of wandering because of their sin. Should have taken 40 days, took 40 years. Slow learners, just like us. Took sin lightly, just like we do. We don't learn quickly, do we? And neither did the fathers of our faith in Israel. So God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, covenant stipulations, and the law of God at Sinai, chapters 19 to 24, what we today call the Ten Commandments, the covenant stipulations. If you'll be faithful, you'll live this way. First four covenants, what it means to be, to know and worship God. Second, six covenants, what it means to know and worship your neighbor, to, or love and worship your neighbor, love and worship God, love and worship your neighbor. Then God gives Moses the pattern for building the tabernacle, to worship him. But of course, Israel, he's gone, they're impatient, they make an idol, golden calf and they worship it and love they say as for this Moses this fellow we don't know what's become of him make us an idol and they worship it doesn't take them long to turn away from God does it all these things they've seen signs and wonders the parting of the Red Sea and lots besides and they turn away from God how quickly do God's people turn away from him how fickle are our hearts God gives Moses the law again. It's broken. Moses throws it down when he sees the golden calf. It's broken. The law is broken. Very symbolic, of course. It happens, really. It's symbolic. But Deuteronomy tells us about the second giving and exposition. Moses gives this long sermon about the law of God and its application to the people of God. God takes Moses to Mount Nebo, shows him the promised land, but says, I won't let you go in because you led the people to sin. But you're going to die, and there it is. Look at it. It's beautiful, but you're not going to go there. Next generation, they're going to go. This generation, sinful generation, a stiff-necked generation, they shall not enter the promised land. But their offspring will, and they do. But Moses dies, and God buries him at 120 years of age. So there's the story of Moses in a, in a, a capsule form. 
Of course, God uses Moses to do what? Write the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, five books, Pentateuch meaning five, Tuch meaning books, five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books. Moses, we believe, wrote those. What kind of man was he? Well, he was a man of deep faith, good man. Scripture praises him again and again for his faith. He was a man of constant prayer, interceding time and again for God's people. He pictures Christ as being an intercessor. Numbers 14, 13 to 19, if you want to read about that later. He was a man of profound humility, which is what we need right in the church of God. He didn't believe he had what it took to lead Israel to be, or be a mouthpiece for God because of that poor, lisping, stammering tongue. Numbers 12, 34 says, Now that the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people were on the face of the earth. Very meek. Very humble. Dependent on God. So there, there's a telescope. We've been using a telescope so far to look at the story of Moses, right? And so now I want to I put it on the microscope. Just one little tiny piece of the story of Moses, Moses under a microscope to focus down onto a couple of details here in chapter 2. That's why it's our text for the day. Back at chapter 2, we're out of Acts. Go back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Look at the birth story. That's what, that's what we're after. That's why I've titled this the, dear, the birth of Israel's dear Savior. Moses is placed in the basket, crying, found by Pharaoh's daughter. One small act, this is what I want you to think about. As the story of redemption moves forward through the Old Testament. And I hope this makes you love the Old Testament, if you don't already. I used to be intimidated by the Old Testament. For I realize that the New Testament gives me the interpretative grid for the Old Testament. The hermeneutic is inspired just like the Word is, right? One small act here really impacted all of human history. Moses became Israel's Redeemer, which is a picture of Christ. I mean, Deuteronomy 18, 15, very important text. The Lord your God, Moses says, this will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Point to Christ. We see the sovereignty of God all over the story of Moses. Because all of Western civilization, I want to argue, all of the ancient Near Eastern history, indeed the entire course of human history was changed by a baby's cry. Remember I said that you don't, you don't despise, despise small things in our lives and their ability to change absolutely everything, maybe even the world around us? Baby's cry. This is why I argue that Moses was one of the most important people in history. Small things, by God's grace, often have this massive impact on history. Remember the old proverb I've been reciting over and over, and R.C. Sproul used this, and I stole this from him, but it's good, so I'm going to use it. For one of a nail, shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For one of a horse, the rider was lost. For one of a rider, the battle was lost. Want of the battle, for lack of the battle, the kingdom was lost, and all for the want of a horseshoe nail. It started somewhere, right? And God unraveled it because a horseshoe nail fell off. Of course, we could talk about history. I could talk all day about this. I won't do that. I've done that in other sermons about how this has played out in history. Not church, not church history, yes, but also just regular old history. God is in the details. Think about Psalm 139. I preached an exposition of a few months back, a few weeks back. We're completely and wonderfully, fearfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb, he says there, right? He says in Psalm 139. God is doing that. Who's doing knitting? Who's the knitter? God is. We've got ladies in our church now. By God's grace, this is our church growth plan. We're going to take the kingdom by storm one birth at a time here at Christ Fellowship Church, and we love that. But who's doing the knitting in your womb, mother? Well, you know God is, right? You know that. Fearfully and wonderfully made, and you sense that. It's part of the image of God in you, and it's glorious, and we love it. That's why we're so decidedly pro-life. So is the psalmist. Just like the Egyptian midwives. It just tells us that God's knowledge and eternal plan extend down to the smallest details. I mean, God only not only knows what we will say, but he knows everything we could possibly say. Knowledge is exhaustive. He knows all the possible contingencies. God does. And yet, there's nothing contingent about God's knowledge, is there? God's control, nothing. Not in Moses' story or your story. 
And this is what I want you to see, the application to your story. And think about where you might be today here. Maybe you're in the middle of the worst, worst dilemma of your life. God's in the details. You say, I don't believe that. Well, it's true here, isn't it? It's true here. It's true with you. I mean, God doesn't have to wait to see when there's a fork in the road. Yogi Berra said, take it, right? Well, when the fork comes in the road, God doesn't have to wait to see which fork we're going to take. He's ordained the fork we're going to take. And it's really just that simple. And that gives me a lot of confidence, and it gives me a whole lot of comfort to know that day in and day out in my life, that's true. And I hope it does you. And so it is with Moses. God ordered the steps of Pharaoh's daughter as she came to the Nile to bathe. And God allowed her cause the baby to cry. We're not sure when the baby cried when she opened the basket, but we have good reason to think that she was probably crying. That may have been what attracted her attention. God calls Moses' older sister to follow them down to the river when Moses was placed on the Nile to see what was going to happen to the baby. God arranged the baby to be nursed and raised by his own mother, even though Pharaoh's daughter had no idea the Hebrew woman was his mother. Is that a little detail? God did it. So he goes right back to his mother, his birth mother. R.C. Sproul said, It was not a surprise to God that Pharaoh's daughter went to the riverside on a fateful day in human history. It was no surprise to him that the baby cried. He ordained that the baby cry, and he ordained that it cry at precisely the right moment, precisely at the moment it cried. God did not leave all this to chance. Indeed, there is no chance in the world, not really, is there? We speak of car accidents, and I know why we say that, of course, because it's a surprise to us, but it's not an accident, strictly speaking, from God's economy, is it? But we can ask the question, what if? And we ask this in our own lives. What if? Or if only. I'll put this. If only. I'll live the if only life. If only this were true in my life, it would be better. If only I had more money or more status in the world. If only people knew me. If I had a bigger ministry. If I had a PhD or I had more education or less education or a better wife or a husband or a better looking wife or husband or if I lose 25 pounds, whatever. If only. We can play if only all day, can't we? God doesn't play if only. Or what if? We can speculate on the course of history. Had the baby not cried? What if he not cried? We could say the baby had not cried. There had been no Moses. Moses would probably have been eaten by crocodiles, honestly. There are lots of crocodiles on the Nile River, right? Or drifted away, never to be heard from again. The mother took a huge chance, but you know, she just said, this is the best chance we've got, and I want to do it to make it, allow him to survive. She trusted God. There had been no Moses. Had there been no Moses, there would have been no incident, incident at the burning bush. Would never have happened. Would have needed to happen. No burning bush, no exodus. No exodus, no giving of the law at Mount Sinai, no law and no prophets to come and interpret the law and say you're sinning, repent and be reconciled to God. No prophets, no Jesus. They foreshadowed him, right? They pointed to him. They forecast him. They foretold of him. No Jesus. No Jesus. No cross. We're not here talking about Calvary this morning in our prayers and in our songs. We're not singing about Calvary and our redemption, his God's redeeming love for us and sinners like us in him. We're not we're singing that today. No. We would all still be dead in our trespasses and sins because no cross means no redemption. We'd be facing the full unmediated wrath of God. God would still be there. Our sins would still be there. We would be facing His wrath alone. No redemption, no Christianity. We would be Christians. No Christianity, no Western civilization as we know it. Christianity undergirds all of Western civilization as we know it. You start to get the picture, that's why I think Moses is a pretty important dude on that list. Yeah. All of this, if a baby in a homemade ark failed to cry at precisely the right moment. Comfort that is. But there's no what if with God. He is a God whose providence is in the details. The devil's not in the details. God is. 
I got a close pastor friend. I got a lot of pastor friends. And one, one of my close friends in particular, he always says, don't sweat the details. He tells me that. He has to tell me that. And he's right. And I probably have to tell him that sometimes. But why not? Well, because God is in the details. We don't have to sweat it. I mean, God is at work in all the minutia of your life. In the small, seemingly insignificant details, there God has his hand this morning. You say, well, I don't like it. God has his hand there this morning. I don't like it. God has his hand there this morning. You don't know my story. God has his hand there this morning. We have a terrible president. God has his hand there this morning. Whatever. God's in the details. You say, well, I certainly haven't experienced any miracles in my life, but there's no reason you should, maybe. <laughs> God is the God of daily, minute-to-minute, ordinary, what we call ordinary providences, ordinary grace, ordinary providences. We need to learn to appreciate in the church of Jesus Christ, beloved, we need to learn to appreciate the ordinary things of the Christian life because God does extraordinary things through those ordinary things. Those little details. God, through a baby's cry, does this extraordinary thing. Brings about the Savior of the world, the salvation of the world. Do you see that? And does it cover you? Do you rejoice in that? Oh, how we should rejoice in God's sovereignty. No matter what's happening in our lives, we shouldn't be Eeyore, you know, woe is me. Come to church, woe is me. Leave church, woe is me. No, God is at work. in The ordinary providences of your life. Not just the miracles, not just the high ticket items. Every detail, every circumstance of your life and mine. And we may not like it. We may not like our circumstances. But no matter what circumstances you're in, we have to learn to thank God and praise Him for His sovereignty over our lives and over the lives of those around us and over our country and over lots of other things. Even when we don't like it. So, you know, I don't like, well, I don't like this election we just had. Well, you know, lots of us don't, but we got to thank God. God did it. God's sovereign. God's sovereign over evil. We're going to get into that when we get into the book of Joseph, the problem of evil. We're going to see that up close and personal. See what's behind that, what's up with that. We'll come back for that. I won't tell you now. Because you won't come back. I want you to come back. Stay tuned. Romans 8, 28. We hear the promise and trust him every day that God causes all things to work together for good, right? For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We must learn to hear that and to be comforted and not say, well, I don't want to hear the Bible. I had someone tell me, well, don't, when you go comfort them, don't talk about the Bible. This is to a Christian. To which I said, what else do they want to hear? My wisdom? My wisdom's no wisdom. Unless it comes from his wisdom, it's no wisdom. But you're a pastor. Well, that means that this had better be my wisdom because I really don't have any wisdom apart from God's wisdom. I don't have anything for you. But you can shoot in your gun, but God does. Causes all things to work together for good. That's his alibi, like we said last week. You want his alibi? Well, there it is. In sickness and in health, and joblessness and in flourishing and sorrow and in joy, and yes, even in life and in death. God is working for our good and for his glory. Our good. It doesn't feel like it, but we don't go by feelings, do we? We go by facts. These are the facts. Our feelings will betray us, man. Boy, I mean, when God's in our feelings, it's great to feel things, but man, that will betray us. You know, it feels to me like almost 99 times out of 100, at least in my case. God's working for our good. We see God's prominence in having Moses born into a, a God-fearing Hebrew home. What if his, the home had been different? What if they didn't like God? What if they said, we don't worship this God. This God's out to lunch. He can't even keep us out of, out of bondage. And they stayed home, and they just gave him over. I mean, strong faith led faith in God led his parents, Amram and Jochebed, to defy Pharaoh's order and hide their son for three months. Jochebed made the papyrus basket and put her baby in it and placed it in the reeds, the right place on the river. They couldn't save their child, but they did the best they could to honor God and, and to try to save him. The great, the great Missionary William Carey very famously said that we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And he did that, of course, in launching the, being used by God to launch the modern missions movement, and millions have been saved through that movement. And Moses' parents did that in seeking to rescue him. 
baby Moses could have floated away, never to be sent again. Or as I said, he could have been eaten by crocodiles and lots of other things that inhabit that river, this famous river. But his parents trusted God. They trusted God's providence. And God saved Moses because he had a plan to make this baby with the unlikely beginning into the Redeemer of Israel. Boy, that's an unlikely beginning, isn't it? Great events have come from small beginnings. I mean, God used this a baby born to a poor family from an oppressed race to be the great emancipator, the great prophet, and the great lawgiver. Boy, does that sound familiar. If it doesn't, it should. Moses' birth was certainly a small beginning. His parents had to give him up, so they put him in this little ark and said, God, go with you. And God did, and God always does. I mean, most of us would say, well, that's it. Moses, this baby's gone. He's out of here. We'll never see him again. Moses is going to meet some bad fate. But no, God was in the details, as he always is. And this should make us do all we can for God, knowing that we can leave the results up to him. I mean, don't despise the day of small things. You, you may feel like the things that you do to serve or please the Lord are small, insignificant things. Well, I just work in the nursery. I just do this. Or I just try to encourage my neighbors. But who knows how God's going to use those things, especially when you're, you're seeking to glorify Him and serve Him. And you may feel like they, they're not much, but they may be used by God to great ends. I mean, you and I do not know what God will bring about from small, weak, seemingly insignificant beginnings that we make. In the case of Moses' parents, God raised up their child to become the great leader, the greatest leader, I want to argue, besides Jesus Christ that the world has ever known. I don't make that claim lightly. So who knows what God will accomplish through your small beginnings? And we finish here. Moses was the great forerunner of Christ. As I quoted already back in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your people, among your countrymen, it is him to whom you shall listen. Who is this one? There is no doubt it's Jesus Christ. Moses was a forerunner to Christ. Think of the parallels. In closing, Jesus' birth, which the world will soon celebrate, even if unwittingly. I'm always amused at you know, how on the Today Show or something, these pagans will be singing, peace on earth and mercy, my God and sinners reconcile. I'm like, you have no idea what you're singing. <laughs> you want to cancel something, you better cancel that. God's got the power to save. Sing it. We're going to celebrate his incarnation, right? But it was a small beginning, if ever there was one, an unlikely success story. If examined from a purely human perspective which is what we have outside in our own lives. After Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary, what did they do? They fled with Jesus to Egypt when Herod decreed that all the male children of Bethlehem be killed. That sounds familiar? Yes, very similar to Pharaoh's edict. You see here how the Bible fits together so beautifully? We couldn't write this. The Spirit of God had to write this, right? Matthew 2.15 says, This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, sending Mary and Joseph to Egypt, not only preserve the life, but so he could say, Out of Egypt I have called my son. What does he call Israel? He calls him my son. And he comes out of Egypt. Well, Jesus comes out of Egypt as the true son. Israel was disobedient. That son was disobedient. That son blew it. But this son, this true Israel, he kept the law perfectly. And he brought him out of Egypt for our sakes. The death angel, the death angel passed over him. Jesus was born to a poor family in a time when Israel was being oppressed by the Romans. God sent Jesus into their slavery to be their great deliverer. This baby, not just of Israel, but of all who have faith in Christ's death and resurrection. You see the parallel here? It's beautiful, isn't it? Again, only the Spirit of God could do this, and I want you to leave encouraged. Moses was rejected by his people. They grumbled, man. Sometimes the pastor in the past, not right now, of course, because you're wonderful, but you know, in the past, go back and find, hey, they grumble at Moses, this great towering figure. So they're going to grumble at your leadership. They grumbled. Moses, right? That's like having, you know, Michael Jordan as your point guard, and you say, this guy's terrible. No, Moses. They grumbled at his leadership. He was rejected by his people. 
And of course, think of the golden calf affair. As for this Moses, we do not know what has happened to him. That is just, and of course, there's almost humor in it, how ridiculous and absurd it is. They turned away from Moses almost immediately. It was showed that a greater Savior must come and rescue them from their sins. And what did God's people do to Christ? What did the Jews do? The Israelite people, they've what? Many of them are still waiting on the Savior, right? Waiting on the Messiah. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah tells us. And so it is. We should thank God for Moses and the small beginnings in God's sovereignty and the story of Moses and in our own lives. Thank God above all for the great redemption that came in his train. Father, I have given a flyover to something that could occupy the rest of our lives, and I pray that I've done it some kind of justice, Lord. But I pray, as I do every week, that you take your word and bind it to people's hearts, to my heart and to the hearers' hearts, whether they're here or they're watching us by video, that you would cause them to revel in your sovereignty, that they would look beyond the circumstances of their life, and they'd see that in the details, it's not the devil. But it's Christ. If it is the devil, it's because he's your devil. As we'll see when we get to Joseph, or, or Job, rather. Together, because you've been writing the story of redemption. You wrote it perfectly, and you write, you're writing our story. God, I pray that we would be comforted and strengthened as we go from here today. That we would leave here resolved to live lives for your glory. That we would not despise the day of small beginnings in our service to you. And that we would... Expect great things and attempt great things for a great God who is sovereign over every molecule and atom and subatomic particle. And God, that you would change us and transform us and comfort our hearts now. Everyone here who's in a bad circumstance, and I know that's probably a lot of us, God, they're saying, I don't understand God. They would trust you, Father, more than their eyes can see through the eyes of faith. Just like Joseph, or just like Moses' parents, just like Joseph, just like Moses, God, give us faith to trust you more. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.